the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, in an ironic turn, darkling babies from Underhill still the breath of newborn kittens in a bid to get cute enough to appear in disposable diaper commercials and talking baby boobies. Black wolves and knights who speak Latin. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. We have an interview with Wynne Spencer this time. She's talking about her new contemporary fantasy adventure novel, The Black Wolves of Boston. Wynne has branched out from her Elf Home books with this one, and it's a winner. Also with us for the interview is Bain publisher and my boss, Tony Weiskopf. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. Now here's the news. We have some great free fiction and nonfiction coming up at the Bain.com website. There are two free short stories this month. One is De Bretanici by DJ Butler. This is a story set in the very cool Appalachian magic-influenced world of his upcoming debut fantasy novel, Witchy Eye. This one's set in England during a strangely changed 1600s, and it is a great introduction to the wonderfully skewed magic from Witchy Eye. Also coming up is a cool new Arenaverse story by Reiki Spore called Preparations and Alliances. This is a prequel to his upcoming Arenaverse novel, Challenges of the Deep. This one has action outside the arena and back in normal space here uh, in the solar system as humanity prepares for what it means to have become the enemy of an alien species with millions of years of malevolence in its long history. De Britannici by DJ Butler and Preparations and Alliances by Reich E. Spore both will soon be up at Bain.com front page and then will be in the Free Fiction 2017 ebook collection which you can download for free at Bain eBooks. I want to welcome Wynn Spencer to the podcast. Hey, Wynn. Hi, Tony. Thanks for having me. We also have Tony Weiskopf, Bain publisher here, along with us uh, this time, which is cool. So Wynn Spencer is the creator of the contemporary fantasy science fiction hybrid Elf Home series. She's the author of science fiction novel Endless Blue, Tinker, the first novel in the Elf Home saga, garnered a John W. Campbell Award for Wynn and a Sapphire Award. <laughs> Wynn lives in beautiful Hawaii, fairly close to a rather active volcano, which must add some excitement to each day. The Elf Home series includes Tinker, Wolf Who Rules, Elf Home, Wood Sprites, and most recently Project Elf Home. She's also the author of contemporary fantasy novel Eight Million Gods, and now at booksellers everywhere, The Black Wolves of Boston. When the Black Wolves of Boston is a bit of a change for you, Eight Million Gods had a contemporary fantasy feel to it, but Black Wolves has has the whole full deal. It's got werewolves and vampires straight out of the straight out of the starting gate. I know you are a writer who works from sometimes subconscious inspiration, um, but how did the first notion come to you that you wanted to write about werewolves and and vampires? at a high level of creativity, it's kind of like you got this fire hose. Um, all the ideas just come pouring out. When you're awake, you're controlling the flow. 
you're going, how can the hero get out of this mess? How can I do this? How can you do this? And you, you stay focused on one plot line. And so you, you're targeting all that creativity. Uh, the problem is that there's no off switch. So when you go to sleep, your brain is still spitting all that stuff out, but, you know, you're not controlling it. So I have the weirdest dreams. <laughs> I mean, they're really totally crazy, out-from-left-field kind of stuff. And when I wake up, of course, I have my mind trained to think story. Everything has to be story. So I wake up from these weird dreams. My brain kind of just immediately starts trying to translate it into a story. And it's kind of like handling, handing uh, a Rubik's Cube to idiots want. Hmm. Playing in bed and my brain is going, well, well, we can change this and we can move that around and we can plug in this and it will be a cool story. <laughs> and sometimes it's right. Sometimes you can't make that dream into anything logical. Yeah. Um, I don't really remember the dream. They usually fade away shortly after I wake up. But I remember that afterwards, the story that my brain came up with was well, that cool. So I wrote it down. And the story that it came up with was Joshua's asleep when a cell phone wakes him up. He answers the phone and realizes, I've been shot several times and I'm inside a coffin. <laughs> calling him really worried because they've been to the house where Joshua lives and it looks like this war had broken out. And the caller wants to Joshua's all right, where he is and if Decker is with him. Joshua rolls over in the coffin and Decker's beside him, dead to the world, because he's a vampire and it's daytime. <laughs> Tells the color, fine, Decker's fine. has no idea where they are because it's daytime. Sitting out in the sunshine, he can't open up the coffin and look to see who he is because that would kill Decker. So he's like, I'll get back to you. Hangs up and goes back to sleep. And Decker wakes up and thinks about teasing Joshua, but says, yeah, it's not a very smart thing to do to tease a werewolf when you're locked in a coffin with them. <laughs> and this, this little snippet is only like 500 words long. But I really, really liked it. So why were these two people together? You know, why were they friends? Who would attack a vampire? You know, how did they get to this situation? And... Uh, I started about it, and the next thing I knew, I had half a book. And we should point out at this uh, at, at this juncture that uh, that this book was not originally contracted for. Um, oh no! This was not among. Yeah, this was this was not among the many books that we had planned to write. No, it just jumped up, grabbed me, and said, "Write me." And I was putting it up on my Facebook as I was writing it, and my fans went track. Tony down and said, Tony, give her a contract. <laughs> and I said, fans, you are absolutely right. I should give one a contract. And so we did. <laughs> yeah, I should. By the way, I should point out that, you know, we're running a contest to uh, to give a free autographed copy of this hardcover away this month. And I've, this may be the largest number of entries I've ever had in a Bain.com front page contest. So, um, the magic rules of this world, they're pretty clear. They hang together really well. Um, 
we start out knowing nothing really at the beginning, which is that this gradual revelation is really cool the way you, you handle it. And it's really fun in the book. Um, but so we don't want to give too much spoilers here, but um, we have to do something to talk about the book at all. Can you give us an idea of how the magic set up and how it how it breeds magical beings in in this world? This is this is present day, basically, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Try not to get spoilers, and it's going to be fun. Okay. Um, <laughs> so the basic trope is if you get bitten by a werewolf, you become a werewolf. And um, but normally it's a mauling where. You know, the person's nearly killed, but still survived. And I wanted to do werewolf families, but it, it kind of seemed horrible that, you know, you're like, yes, yes, we have to maul our children <laughs> to the point that they almost die in order to make them werewolves. And it seemed like a horrible way to continue a family line of werewolves. Um, and there's some writers who just never talk about magic of the mauling and there's others who say it's a virus where the smallest nip can transmit the disease i really wanted to make it a magical cause so i came up with the idea that all the werewolf magic came from one common source and they call it the source and it's the pack magic and um basically the werewolf fight is a magical wound and but that wound, it opens up a, a hole to the source, and the magic flows into the person and makes them a werewolf. Um, and once I had that concept down, I started to expand on it to make the rest of the magic. Now, the, the magic is, uh, the, the werewolves are not necessarily... Um... Well, they're they're pretty rough and tough, but they're we'll talk about it a little bit more. But the magic occurs in certain spots, right? There's a there are rifts mm -hmm. where it flows into the world. Yeah, um, what I kind of expand on it was that the reality isn't as simple. What you see is what you get. It's more like a box of tissues. Uh, there's layer upon layer upon layer, and the werewolves are connected to one layer. It's their source, but there's all these other layers, and most people are only aware of the layer they live on, but the people who have special powers can then see into different layers. So you've got the people who, can, who uh, are mediums or, you know, see things. Um, Dugan is one of these people, and Dugan can see into other realities. Um, Dugan's world is set up on the same principle. And uh, basically, if our reality weakens, there's a tear into one of these other layers. And the power of this other world can spill into ours. And at that point, anything the magic from the other world hits, um, be it a rat or a pig or a horse or a person, it turns them into a monster because it doesn't need a wound because there's already a hole open. The breach itself is the hole. So um, the there's the possibility you get turned into the monster. There's the possibility of mitigating the effects. 
but most monsters are just monsters, right? There's, you describe them somewhere in the book as, as like lights on a Christmas tree strand. They're either on or off. You can't dim them or not. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, the power flows in. It burns out whatever is originally there, and it's operating the shell, um, which is full of monster. Um, werewolves are different because that they have basically a shared network that lessens the load. And the network starts with the Wolf King Alexander at the top, and then he funnels down into the pack alphas, who, um, who are different levels of power because their territories are different levels. So you have the princes and the marquis and the earls and the barons. And underneath them is the normal pack um, dog, uh, werewolves. So basically you have this whole tree of interconnections that keep the power from overflowing and destroying the person and allows them to tap the magic but not be overwhelmed by it. And if they don't have that pack structure, then they're feral, right? They're feral werewolves, and they're hopelessly monstrous. Yeah, that, that's where ferals are the ones where the connection into the pack wasn't made, and basically the power has burnt out the human being, and all you have is the power operating uh, a body. Mm. And ferals never turn into humans. They stay wolves. They look different from normal werewolves. And all they're focused on is killing things, anything that comes in their path. So they're really, really dangerous. And anything they bite and don't kill becomes a werewolf. So it's a very quickly spreading, um, kind of like a disease sector, but it's all magic. Uh, one feral can make a hundred in a short period of time. So almost anybody who knows about the ferals will kill them on sight. Mm. So in the book, we're in a modern setting, like we said, um, Boston, upstate New York, and even some in New York City. Um, Location always seems to be important in your work. It, in, for instance, the Tinker and those books, uh, the Elfone books, take place in this changed Pittsburgh. Um, you really bring Boston to life in this one. Did did you do a lot of research? Is this um, pretty much to, meant to be modern Boston? Yeah, it's mostly um, our Boston. I had lived in the suburbs of Boston for 10 years. So I knew the city somewhat. I can't say well, because um, I lived in the suburbs and I only came in the city um, mostly for conventions. <laughs> um, so, um, there's Arisia, Boscone, and um, ReaderCon. The ReaderCon's out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, <laughs> So, I could, I knew the city, but I still need to do lots and lots of research. Uh, 
when I was at Boscom once, I was talking. I wanted to use in a story, but I was afraid that if I got the details down, that you know people would track me down and to correct me. Hmm. And the room full of people go, "Oh no, we would never do that." <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid if I get the door closure alarm, the sound that the subway makes just before the door closes on the red line. That people would, if I get that wrong, I'm afraid that people would yell at me. And everybody who just said that they would never correct me said, it is an alarm. A woman said, I step away from the door. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I know that they will come after me if I don't get the details right. So I work very hard. I do a lot of research to make sure I do this, get, that I get it right. It seems to play into your stories a lot, too. It seems to affect the telling of the stories as well. I mean, not all writers put the kind of specific, you know, they, they choose generic small towns or whatever, make them up. But you choose places. Uh, do you think that's something to do with your writing method? Well, part of it, part of it is I believe that if you make what the readers know themselves or can find out themselves as real as possible, um, they're more willing to let you push the boundary on the stuff you make up. So if you take McDonald's and have everything, all the details of McDonald's right, and then put a werewolf and a vampire sitting there having discussion, you're more willing to go with, yeah, yeah, this all could happen. This all could be real because so many things they know from McDonald's that, that you get right, that they're willing to give you a pass on everything else. Yeah, one of the things that I, I like about your work, when and we were we were talking about this earlier in the office, is that you take us places that we don't expect to go. That that you can start out with, all right, you got a vampire and a werewolf in McDonald's, but then you take us to that very real McDonald's, and and you take us to this conversation that these vampire that the vampire and the werewolf are having, and it's absolutely exactly real but it's not at all what you would expect and i think that's that's part of the delights of your work um that that, that you do that consistently over and over again that 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 your imagination and your exploration of your uh fantasy principles um is so rigorous and logical that it's 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 just a fun ride that you take us on Well, I, I love to take credit for it, but it's my unbridled creativity running away with me. <laughs> um, I usually don't know where it's going. <laughs> so uh, tell us a little bit about Joshua, um, who's basically our main character. There's several characters in the book that are very important, but uh, who is who do we think he is at the beginning, at least? What's he like? Well, um... Joshua was 18, and up to before he gets mauled, he didn't know Monster existed. Um, and uh, he's short, and 
very popular in school, and he liked to read and such, and he really thought that he was going to go off to college and get away from this little town where he's always been picked on. Um, part of the problem is he has this horrible last name that just begs to be made fun of. And then there's also the fact that he has all these, you know, things about And he's so dorky that his sister got him into judo um, to defend himself. So while he gets picked on, he can actually hold his own in any fight. And just shortly before he... Um, started into his senior year, his parents are mechanics, um, and they're not very good at business, and they always thought uh, his father's parents would pay for his college because uh, they had paid for everybody else. Um, they basically did this, no, we're not going to pay for his college. So he's scrambling to get a... Um, scholarship and uh, one of the things he, he wants to do is scholarships go to people who join clubs. So he's joined a lot of clubs and one of them is the prom committee because he figures the only way he's going to at a prom because he's not going to have a date is be part of the planning committee and put things in that he'll enjoy doing in the prom and get to know the other people who are working on the prom who are sure to be there. And, you know, this is his plan. And that all blows up in his face. <laughs> yeah. In a, in a, in a supernatural manner. Um, so uh, Joshua flees to Boston after some really cool and interesting and horrible stuff happens. Um, why are there no werewolves in Boston? Well, we had talked about the breaches, and uh, basically what had happened was there had been a really, really bad breach three years earlier, and it took out the entire pack, except for Seth, who is the son of the prince. Uh, Seth was in New York City with the Wolf King, and when his pack was wiped out, uh, Seth became the Prince of Boston. Uh, he's still in New York City, so um, there are no wolves in Boston at the start of the story. And the idea is that once um, Seth, who's 16 at the moment, grows up to the point where he can hold his own, he'll start a pack and move to Boston and retake the city. Right now, it's a very dangerous place um, because there could be a breach at any time. And Seth is one of the, the main characters that we follow as well. Um, but let's talk about some of the other things than werewolves. How about Decker? Um, he seems to be a fairly gentle soul for a vampire. Um, yeah. Um, I, I kind of based Decker on my husband. 
too. Uh, I've sent many times, kind of like Dalai Lama. Um, and one of the things Decker doesn't do a lot is he walks up quietly on Joshua, uh, startling him, and Joshua has a bad reaction to being startled. And that's kind of the same relationship I have with my husband. I never hear my husband coming. And um, I tend to scream and hit him. Uh, and like Decker, my husband is very snarky. So there's this constant, I'm going to get hit for this, but I'm going to say it anyhow because, damn, it's funny. <laughs> Well, tell us about the uh, initial meeting between Joshua and Decker, which is, you know, it's at the start of the book. There's no spoiler to be had there necessarily. It was pretty funny. Um, Joshua was basically bashing himself into trees, right? Yeah. Well, um, when he's out with the prom committee and it goes horribly wrong, Joshua basically wakes up in the hospital as a werewolf. And it takes him a little while to realize that he's a werewolf. And in that time, he breaks the IV drip, he breaks the bathroom door, he breaks the bed. And when he breaks the MRI machine, the hospital sends him home. <laughs> and after he gets out of the hospital, he rips the door off his father's pickup truck uh, he snaps the cold water faucet in the upstairs bathroom, which floods the kitchen. Um, then he puts his hand for the neighbor's door, trying to get help uh, with the flood. And then his neighbor gets electrocuted, and they have to call the ambulance, do CPR. And after all this, he's like, werewolf bad. I need to get away from my family and friends. <laughs> so he runs away to Boston. He has no plan. Um, so he's broke, he's starving, and he has this whole second personality, um, which is the magic influencing, he calls it the wolf. He doesn't know what's going on, but he's in this park trying to get food, and that leads him to running around trying to catch rabbits. And every time he misses a turn, he slams into a tree. Um, and meanwhile, Decker is a vampire, and his magic ability is to find anything he wants. Before he became a vampire, who was a human, who was a water drowser. And, uh, but he worked as a water drowser, but he can't find anything he puts his mind on. And it's been 300 years of him being a vampire, and he's lonely, and he's so lonely that he's depressed to the point where he's suicidal. And But he's Catholic, so there's the whole, if you kill yourself, you go to hell. And as a vampire, he knows hell is real. <laughs> so he really doesn't want to kill himself. <laughs> so he basically wakes up at dusk and does this, okay, I need to solve this problem. I'll find something that can make me happy about being alive. So he uses his magic ability, and it leads him to the park where Joshua is. And he's like, okay, that's not what I expected, but I'm going to get that 
werewolf and I'm going to make it mine <laughs> in terms of take him home, keep him there by whatever means um, is required. And, and one of the things, I, again, I, I like about your characters is that these guys are trying to do right the best they can given what they're working with. And and they're, you know, they're not given a complete understanding of the universe, and they're not given a lot of resources, but but they're trying to do well by themselves and, and, to, and by their families. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why your, your works are so readable. Um, is that you can really sympathize with these guys. Yeah, I like writing characters who are not horrible people. Um, <laughs> yeah. And part of it is you write what you love, and uh, when I read fiction, I generally like pick out the character who's a good guy. Um, i not one much for the anti-hero. I think Tommy Chang is the closest I get to an anti-hero. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he, he still tries. <laughs> he does. Yeah, these are from the, the Elf Home books, yeah. There's a uh, heroine also in the book. Her name is Elise. Um, so is she is also a magical being or has magic. What's a Grigori? What's a virtue? What is Elise in particular? Okay. Well... In the Bible, it's stated that after Adam and Eve were driven out of the Garden of Eden to live on earth, God sent angels to watch over them, and they're called watchers. And in Greek, that's Grigori. Um, and the Bible goes on to say when angels started to lust after the daughters of men, they decided to take a vote. And if they say yes, they're going to go down and take wives. And if they say, no, no, they'll just keep on watching. Well, the vote was yes. Uh, so they took a bunch of wives, because um, this is the period of time where you married five or six women, as many women that you could actually feed. And they started having children. And there's all these weird legends about the children. Uh, some of them are referred to uh, giants. And other ones in the stories, these um, half-angels men in science, like astrology. Hmm. Um, and some of the stories say that the main reason for the Great Flood was because there was too much angelic blood floating around. <laughs> this is all in various stories of the Bible. Um, they've been weeded out of the King James Version, pretty much, but you still can find older versions of the Bible and Jewish writings and various different, um, you know, ancient religions in that area that talk about this. So I decided to put a spin on this, that, uh, that God gave the people with angelic blood a choice. They could be wiped out in a flood or become monster hunters. And so... The Grigori are basically the descendants of those angels. Uh, they're not one family, but they're kind of like a tribe, a nomadic tribe. And they occasionally refer to themselves in various groups as tribes. So Elise is from the East Coast tribe. Her family originally was Philadelphia, was in Philadelphia, and she still has aunts and cousins. 
there. Um, the Gregori break themselves up into various ranks, and are based on um, ranks of angels that are lit various religious texts. And the lowest level is Dominion. Uh, they're kind of like the clerical workers of the Gregori. Um, and then the next level is virtue, which is what Elise is. And they kind of work as the police force. Um, they investigate monster hunts, uh, reports, and if they need to, they'll track down and kill the monster. So the Angel and Dugan story, uh, does a bear shoot in the woods, was a virtue. Um, we should mention that that story is up at Bain.com right now for reading for free. I'll give you a good, uh, insight into the um to uh the black wolves of boston's world as well and it will eventually be in the free fiction 2017 free ebook collection you can download at bain ebooks okay yeah um so yeah elise is a virtual there's another level above her that they're called the powers and they're considered the tactical nukes but we haven't seen any of them yet <laughs> um and when the kids are young, they're given a choice. It's, you know, do you want to stay at Dominion? Or if they have the ability, do you want to be a virtue? And there's some bells and whistles to virtue. So um, at 13, they make the choice which way they want to go. And if they choose to become a virtue, they get shipped to Greece and trained. And... Um, because it's a very tight-knit, close community, uh, it's kind of like a golden period for the girls. Um, well, the, for all of them. They're, they're both males and females. But it, it's a period of time where you're with like-minded people with like abilities, and there's no real jealousy that they have to deal with because the Gregorian are beautiful people, and generally it triggers all sorts of problems with people around them um and then when they turn 18 they're given two magical daggers and sent out in the world to live alone and elise is very lonely because she doesn't know how to make normal friends she kind of skipped that part in life uh, because she was at this training with cousins she's pretty young too right she got sent over there when she was very young so she's about the same age as Decker yeah. and uh, Joshua. She's a little bit older. She's more like 24, and Joshua's 18. Mm -hmm. um, well, I mean, Decker is 300, of course. But Yeah. <laughs> it's all general. Um, <laughs> but he got killed when he was a younger guy, or turned into a vampire. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, Decker was probably about 22 when he got turned into a vampire. Um. But yeah, Lisa's been doing this for a few years, enough years that, you know, all the shininess has worn off. And she's looking around going, you know, this kind of sucks. Hmm. I go out every day and risk my life and then come home and eat alone. And I don't like this. So she's basically trying to figure out how to change her life, too. So there are the, uh, these are our, our heroes, um, including Seth, who is, uh, who's, who's the uh, heir apparent to Boston, but he lives in New York at the start of the story. He's a werewolf. Uh, 
Um, who are the bad guys? Um, these awful people called the Wickers, right? Mm-hmm. Tell us about them. Yeah. Okay. Well, in my world, I have witches, and then I have witches. <laughs> and they all, they all share certain abilities. It's how they choose to use those abilities that make them evil. Now, all witches have a power they call persuasion, and it's a power that lets them basically push humans into things that they normally wouldn't do. So a strong witch could walk into a car dealership and ask for the keys for the best car and then have all the proper paperwork signed and then drive away with the car without it ever reported stolen. Um, what makes witches, wickers, evil are that they use blood magic. They do actual human sacrifices. Um, and what they do with these sacrifices is they craft wooden constructs out of branches and such, and then they tie a human life force to the construct to animate it. And then through their um, ability, their persuasion ability, they can control the construct construct as if it, it's a robot. Well, tell us, I mean, the uh, at the opening of the book, we encounter this really kind of really scary uh, monster that they've constructed called a huntsman. Can you uh, just tell us about the bad magic that, that they've used and what how that thing is animated? And, and it's really hard to kill as well, right? Yeah. Um, basically, um, the Wickers have made this thing, and then they've taken, they killed the Joseph, Joseph's neighbor, uh, Joe Buckley, um, <laughs> but they kill Joe Buckley and they take his heart and um, they put it inside the huntsman and this basically is the channel to bring power from one of these other realities into the monster and it gives them kind of a dual reality because they're in our world and in the monster's world. So what it can do is teleport from um, the one place to the other. And they give it life with the, the human sacrifice. And then they load it up with items that are tuned to Joshua's psyche. So they raid his house and they take stuff and they take things that were hit by Joshua's blood at the fight with, at the barn. Um, and they dress the huntsman like it's a scarecrow. So they like put the bloody t-shirt on it and the headphones that one of the kids was wearing and one of these glowy necklace things. They, they load it all up on to the huntsman so that it can locate Joshua at a distance and basically teleport right beside him. And it also can create, um, teleport other constructs to it, its location by killing people. So it kills a person and that becomes a, basically a seedbed for a hound. So the huntsman has any number of hounds with it that it can summon up the uh, 
um, killing people. So, yeah, it's really scary, and it's coming after Joshua. And he doesn't know it, so he's really taking back when it shows up. Kind of like a magical version of a, it's kind of like a scarecrow terminator that they have to deal with. Yes, it is. Fortunately, Elise is around. Um, also, that creepy crawly math homework thing, that was really, that really creeped me out, um, especially when they opened it up. <laughs> well, it's the same general idea. They uh, took Joshua's um, math book. It was a calculus book because it's attuned to Joshua. Um, and they basically kind of did a crossing between origami and then um, weaving where they put all the pieces together. So it, it kind of was like a, a big butterfly or something, moth or something. But then they inserted into it a human eye and with the human eye and the human sacrifice attached to that human eye, they could actually control it from a distance to have a constant moniker of Joshua's house. It was, uh, I never thought that origami math homework could be scary, but, but it was. Um, <laughs> Thank you. The, another cool character I'd love to hear more about is um, Dr. Huff. Uh, I think that's her name, the werewolf veterinarian. Just, I don't know. I just like the idea. Um, <laughs> werewolves need a veterinarian. Can you tell us a little about her? Well, um, again, that's the creativity kind of taking over. Uh, I knew I wanted a doctor for the werewolves because normally they heal without any intervention, but there's certain times that they do get the smock beat that out of them and they need a doctor. And at that period of time, it's usually when they're as a wolf. So the doctor would have to be familiar with dogs and wolf um, physiology. So I decided to make it a veterinarian was their doctor of choice. Um, so I have it set up that the Prince of Boston basically does this scholarship and picks out somebody who can is aware of the other layers and basically gives them a free ride to college with the understanding that afterwards, for the rest of their life, they would be the um, veterinarian for the vampire, um, not the vampires, the werewolves. And so she's the royal vet. And but I hadn't really planned on what she was like and who she looked who what she looked like or anything it just i had her open the door and my creativity said okay she's goth and she's got black lipsticks and these twin braids and you know leather everywhere and it kind of surprised me i'm like okay sure goth i can go with that um <laughs> But I also have a lot of friends who are veterinarians, and when you talk to them, um, they're always the, oh, he's such a sweet little thing, oh, let me pet him, oh, I'm going to take care of him. And they always have lots of pets, and 
a lot of those pets are animals they rescued in one way or another. So Dr. Haas is kind of part friends of mine that I know who are veterinarians and part totally out of the blue. I don't know where it came from. Well, she, um, she certainly has that sort of attitude toward Joshua, which is pretty funny because she, um, I mean, she thinks of the, for her, he's kind of a cute puppy, even though he's a dangerous werewolf. Yeah. Or she sees the puppy in him or something like that. Yeah. Uh, that's part of the, having picked somebody who's psychically aware of the other realities and part of it is that she's been the royal vet for several years, so she was Seth's vet when Seth lived in Boston. So she got to watch him grow up. And the last time he, she saw him, he was 13. So and, and at 13, Seth was a cute little puppy, too. So, And Seth also had a bunch of little brothers who had been... Um, just becoming werewolves when they were killed. Mm -hmm. So she's taken care of a lot of puppies, werewolf puppies, in the past. So, and I have it that because they've been werewolves for generations and generations, um, there is a certain set of behavior that the parents expect out of the kids, and part of it is, no, no, no. You never hit a human. You never bite a human. Um, you never get aggressive with humans because you can kill them. And if you kill them, then we have to make the body disappear, and it gets really messy. So, no, be good. Don't lose your temper. Be a good little puppy. So uh, with that mindset, they do interact with her Dr. Huff at the best level. Decker and Joshua their relationship kind of is is uncertain at first, um, but it becomes a strong bond. Um, I guess that's one of the main uh, main subplots of the book is is how they come together. But you you've already talked about Decker's loneliness. What is Joshua finding in Decker? I mean, he wants to help the guy. He goes and buys paint. Tries to find out his favorite color and stuff. Oh, we should talk about Decker's house one a little bit, too, before we go. Um, yeah, Decker loves to read, so does Joshua. So when Decker was looking for a house to buy when he first moved into Boston area, because he moved in in the 1950s after a tragic accident when he lived in Philadelphia. Um, and he was moved by Lisa's grandfather, Saul. Josh, um, Decker wanted a nice library. So on the first floor, there's this great big library. But the library came with lots and lots of bedrooms that Decker has no need for. <laughs> so he has this great big house. And living all alone, and he didn't have any furniture because his last house burned down. Um, he didn't see the need to have furniture because, you know, he's a vampire. He doesn't need a table. He doesn't need this. He doesn't need that. And he kind of went overboard with the I don't need stuff. So for the first year or so, the house was empty except for all of his books that he was collecting in one chair and <laughs> a side table. And then after a while, 
you know how an empty house echoes so much. And Decker started just collecting random stuff and never throwing it away. One, because he didn't know how to throw it away, because nobody explained trash to him. Because up to this point, he had had servants that took care of the house. But he lost all the servants when the house burned down. Um, so he's been collecting stuff and collecting stuff and collecting stuff. And since he moved in during the 1950s, it's now been 60-some years that he's been collecting all this junk. So the house is now overflowing with junk. And it's never been cleaned. It's never been properly, you know, the paint starts to peel after 40 years. Um, and, you know, the gutters are full of dead leaves and it's in horrible, horrible shape. So part of Joshua moving in with him is I have somebody who knows how to take care of things, who can be awake during the day and take care of things like call the bank and set this up and call the garbage company and set up garbage re- um, pick up and, and just on and on of things that can be taken care of only during the daytime. But, you know, what I liked about the very first piece that I wrote about the two of them was I liked the level of trust and relation, um, friendship, where, you know, obviously Joshua would die protect, to protect Decker and Decker would carry him off to the middle of nowhere and tuck him in a coffin beside him to keep him safe. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, he'll tease the heck out of Joshua, but no, he he cares about Joshua. And I try to continue that, but basically show the beginning seeds and grow it. Mm-hmm. And Joshua never really had close friends in high school. And you know, when you're growing up, you have that, in elementary school, your friends are the kids that live next door to you and who are the children of your parents' friends. And um, and in high school, it, normally it's the kids who sit next to you and who share your locker, who you eat lunch with. And you really, you know, you might not have a whole lot in common with those people. You're just thrown together and you do the best you can with what you're there to work with. But in college, you start making friends, you know, based solely on shared interest. And this is basically the first adult relationship for Joshua, is that friendship that isn't just because, you know, the person lives next door. And so he's getting all sorts of Oh, you like books, too? I love books. Have you read this book? Oh, yeah, you read this book, too. Let's sit and talk about this. Um, I've never heard of that book. That's cool. And they both also share an interest in architecture. And they're having fun sharing the things that they like that the other person might like. So there's this whole, you know, building a relationship that has... Nothing to do with monsters and stuff like that. Yeah, it's a really cool um, thread for, that, that works through the book. Um, so you have a, a, a sort of coming-of-age story within for Joshua and uh, and even to for um, 
or Decker to an extent within this um, perilous adventure that they're having with bad guys um, chasing after them, etc., and them trying to solve uh, a magical mystery. I also want to add in that I am working on a sequel for Black Wolves 2. Uh, Excellent. Good. Uh, Do we have a title? No, I don't. I haven't figured it out, but it figures big with a penguin. So, I mean, part of me is like, we're penguins of Boston. No, I don't think that will go. Uh, I'm I'm not saying no. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it'll come to you in a dream, no doubt. (laughs) Well, thanks, Wayne. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is, is that it was based on a dream. I had a weird dream about a penguin, and I woke up and thought, oh, this would work wonderfully for Joshua. <laughs> uh, it's going to be fun. <laughs> well, out right now, don't have to wait for this one, The Black Wolves of Boston by Wynn Spencer. It's available at booksellers everywhere. Wynn, thanks so much for being with us today. Well, thanks, Tony, for having me. I had a lot of fun. Uh, I really enjoy the chance of talking about my books. Well, we love to talk to you about them. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. It seems Cinnabar's chief spymaster is a mother also, and her son is determined to search for treasure in the midst of a civil war. Who better to hold the boy's hand and to take the blows directed at him than Captain Daniel Leary, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy's troubleshooter, and his friend, the cyberspy Adele Mundy. The only thing certain in the struggle for control of the mining planet Corsera is that the rival parties are more dangerous to their own allies than to their opponents. Daniel and Adele face kidnappers, pirates, and a death squad, even before they can get to the real business of ending the war on Coursera and bringing their charge home, maybe along with ancient alien treasure. Now here is the next entry of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. Chapter 26 Outside Haplinger on Coursera Adele was familiar with the odor of swamps. She had landed on many swampy locations since she began accompanying Daniel Leary, and indeed, Bantry's marshes. The water flowed there, although slowly, were a very similar environment. The smell of this warm, wet air circulating through the Keisha's open hatches was unique in her experience, however. It wasn't uniquely bad, exactly, though when Adele actually thought about the stench, it was pretty bad, but it was certainly unique. She hadn't particularly noticed it when they landed six hours ago, but it had become more insistent now that the sun was down. It probably had to do with the way the explosion had stirred and homogenized the soil. They've stabilized the Borea by lashing her to the Nembo, and a freighter, so she isn't going to sink completely after all, said Corey from the command couch. I wouldn't bet she could be made serviceable again, though, at least not economically. Corey was watch officer tonight, so he was helping Adele sort Pantelarian communications. His expertise made him ideal to monitor the destroyer squadron and the Pantelarian naval presence generally. 
Vessie's enthusiastic certainty that Admiral Stanzi's ships would be out of action for a week or longer appeared to have been correct based on the discussions Corey was reporting. The Army is dealing with rescue and damage control, Adele said from her usual place at the console's rear position. I don't see any signs that an attack is planned, and they've evacuated the remaining strong points. I wouldn't have thought there was much damage that you could repair, Corey said as he sorted. He and Cazalet, when he was present, worked as though they were Adele's separate limbs, doing what she requested with skill and flair. Though not as yet, she smiled minusculely, as much skill and flair as their teacher. The blast shook down houses in Hablinger, Adele said. They're digging people out and lifting walls where they can, where the sheathing kept the walls together. I'm afraid there are many dead. Another blast could level most of Hablinger. The only discussion of Adele's claim that there were other mines was between high officers, but the garrisons of the remaining strong points had been dribbling back into the city as soon as they learned that Point 3 had vanished. By the time Pandalarian headquarters put out a formal recall, the outlying posts were already abandoned. Are there more mines, Corey said? Though I don't think they'd be necessary. The Navy, at least, will mutiny if Arno doesn't accept the offer. No, said Adele, as she continued to cascade data down her display. I suppose they could be placed easily enough if they were needed. The miners might have to use other techniques as a result of what the first explosion did to the ground, but I presume Brother Graves would be equal to the challenge. She had access to everything except Commissioner Arnaud's own communications. Unless he had been killed, unlikely because someone else would have mentioned it, Arnaud was using couriers and handwritten messages. Or he could be sitting in his trailer in a circle of empty bottles, but his subordinates would probably have been discussing that on the communications net. The hatch between the bridge and the hold was open, but Barnes rapped on the jam instead of entering. The rigger was in charge of the four guards at the main hatch. Ma'am, he said, frowning. There's a guy here to see you. He says he's an envoy from the Wogs. The ones we're fighting, I mean. He don't have a gun. Now Adele frowned. There hadn't been anything in official communications about peace emissaries, though quite a number of Pantelarian personnel had been discussing surrender among themselves. Send him to Captain Leary, Adele said. Daniel was in the headquarters complex. Brother Graves and his team of miners and transformationists had quickly created a hamlet of barracks and meeting rooms from the plastic sheeting which the Kaisha had brought on her hop from Brotherhood. No, escort him to the headquarters, or... She wasn't usually indecisive, but this situation was unexpected. There wasn't a hint of this in the communications traffic. Perhaps she... Ma'am, Barnes said. He says it's you he wants, not six. That's why the perimeter guards brought him here. He's just a sergeant, ma'am. I'll see, Tovera said. She held her submachine gun. If he's planning to kill you, will you want to question him before I finish him off? Yes, said Adele. That was a Pantelarian response she hadn't considered. Though surely an assassin would be even more interested than a peace envoy in seeing Daniel rather than her. Tovera slipped out. Barnes stood in the hatchway, holding his impeller crossways in front of him like a quarterstaff. Adele smiled faintly as she rose to her feet. Barnes couldn't have been really worried that a killer would overcome Tovera, but the sissies didn't take chances with the safety of a mistress. A moment later, Tovera said, It's all right, Barnes, and the rigger moved to the side. 
Tovera entered, still holding the submachine gun, but now smiling. Behind her was a middle-aged man in rumpled, muddy pantalarian utilities. The blouse bore no name tag. I didn't expect you, Commissioner Arnell, Adele said, taking her hand out of her tunic pocket. The fox never had a better messenger than himself, Arno said with a shrug. It was probably a pantalarian proverb. You and I began this discussion, so I would prefer to resume it with you before I meet with Captain Leary. With the Independence Council, Adele said. Piffle, Arno said. The anger he let out in the word showed what was really going on beneath his calm. If I had no one to deal with but the Corsairans, I wouldn't be here now. I'm here to talk with you and then Leary, and the rest can go hang. Adele considered the situation. I take your point, she said. She gestured to a jump seat and said, Sit down, please. I'm glad to have a chance to discuss matters with you before you say something in public which might cause you embarrassment. I'll leave, said Corey, rising from the command console. Please sit down, Master Corey, Adele said, though she wasn't sure she was making the correct decision. You're on duty. While I don't have anywhere else suitable to talk with the commissioner, I think you are safe with anything you might hear. Arno shrugged again and sat carefully on the jump seat. You're setting the terms, he said. He sounded calm, but Adele thought she heard his voice tremble under the surface. To get the basic point out of the way immediately, Adele said, Evidence in your personal console will show that you were a Cinnabar agent while Cinnabar was at war with the Alliance of Free Stars. You communicated with your handlers through Bantry Holdings. Furthermore, it will show that you conspired with Captain Leary to betray your force on Corsera to Captain Leary. The signal detonating the mine which stranded your squadron was sent from the network computer in your headquarters. Unexpectedly, Commissioner Arnaud laughed. I assumed there would be something of the sort when I realized who you were, he said, which I didn't do until you made the surrender demand in your own name this morning, unfortunately. And I'll admit that I didn't expect quite so elaborate a frame-up, though I suppose I should have done. He shook his head, then showed another flash of anger as he snarled. You must think I'm a complete fool, milady. Corey was back on his couch, focused so rigidly on his display that he might have been shot and stuffed. He seemed embarrassed to be listening, but it really was the only option. I told you, Adele said, that you hadn't realized what you were doing when you brought Captain Leary into your war. Captain Leary travels with a staff. I understand now that it's too late, Arno said. His eyes had drifted to a corner of the floor. He looked up and said sharply, I understand that I was particularly a fool to threaten Captain Leary, wasn't I? Would he have helped me if I'd come to him in a different fashion? Daniel didn't even know about the threat, Adele thought. Aloud, she said, your situation would not have been worse if you'd approached Captain Leary as a friend. I don't know that he would have agreed to help you even then, however. My situation couldn't be worse, Arno snapped. I came here to ask for asylum on Cinnabar. I'll be hanged if I go back to Pantelleria, regardless of any treason you've invented for me. He suddenly grinned in a return to good humor. By the way, he said, you won't find any evidence on the console in my trailer. Before I started here tonight, I set off a thermite grenade inside it. I didn't know what you had done to it, Lady Mundy, but I realized you'd done something. There was evidence elsewhere, of course, 
Adele said, getting to her feet again. But you've convinced me that you're not a fool, Commissioner. She coughed. Arnaud stood up also, looking tensely hopeful. Adele said, I'll take you to Captain Leary now. He's been considering the situation following the end of the war. You may learn something to your advantage. Tovera gestured Arnaud to the hatch. She had holstered her submachine gun again, which was more a comment on her state of mind than on how quickly she could react to danger. Six says he's not a politician, Tovera said, but he's lying. She laughed, a cackle that might have come from a peevish reptile. That was another entry in our complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a creaky oaken cask of purple drifting river fog bottled and sold to dyspeptic realists who want to breathe a little mystery back into their relationships and to hopeless romantics who need a whiff now and again for medicinal purposes, plus the moonlit howls of a pack of happy reader puppies for Wynne Spencer, author of The Black Wolves of Boston. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. Bye.